Well, good afternoon, everyone. I hope you all are well. Uh, my name is Adam Scher. I'm the Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And I welcome everybody to another episode of our at-home version of uh, our Banner Lecture Series. Uh, as you all probably know, the museum uh, remains closed in response to the COVID crisis, uh, but we're all very happy to be able to connect with you through this uh, virtual lecture series. Uh, today's topic is perhaps even more meaningful um, given the events of the past week in, in Minneapolis, uh, here in Richmond, and across the nation. Um, I like to think of history as a lens uh, through which we view the experiences of others and the stories that you're going to hear today uh, about the Great Dismal Swamp uh, allow us to, to better understand how we arrived at the events we're experiencing today. Uh, and uh, we at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture uh, are currently committed, uh, will continue to be committed uh, to using the power of history uh, to help Virginia uh, become a more reflective, more inclusive and more compassionate community. Uh, and we, we hope that learning more about the events of the past, like the ones that you're about to hear, will help inform a better future for all of us. Uh, so uh, I'm very pleased to be able to introduce our speaker today, uh, Dr. Marcus Nevius. Dr. Nevius is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, he is currently a Mount Vernon Washington Library Fellow. Uh, and his previous research support includes a Mellon Fellowship uh, from the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Dr. Nevius has written scholarly reviews uh, for the Journal of African American History uh, and the Journal of Southern History, and is the author of City of Refuge, Slavery and Petite Marinage in the Great Dismal Swamp, 1763 to 1856, which is the subject of his talk today. So please welcome Dr. Marcus Nevius. Thank you so much, Adam, for that kind uh, introduction. Um, it's really an honor to be able to have this conversation today, to give this presentation, to talk about uh, the Great Dismal Swamp, the experience of Petite Marinage, and more broadly, uh, perhaps some of the experiences of enslaved people uh, whose lives were spent laboring in slavery in the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, and as you acknowledge, too, we're at a particularly sensitive moment in our nation's history. Uh, so in an acknowledgement of our, that moment, I'd like for us to just take a moment to pause to reflect upon uh, George Floyd's unfortunate murder uh, at the hands of law enforcement and for us to just uh, situate ourselves in this moment. It's my hope that uh, City of Refuge is but one small contribution to, uh, as Adam has just mentioned, our efforts to learn about the past in order to move into a better uh, future. I'm going to turn to a PowerPoint, uh, which will help to guide us in our particular uh, conversation today. 
And I certainly invite any questions that you may have uh, in the wake of our conversation. I'll be talking for about 30 to 40 minutes or so. Uh, and then I would certainly love to engage in a more direct dialogue. I'll begin with the cover of City of Refuge that you see here. Uh, this is an image, an oil painting, uh, which was produced in 1888 by an artist named David Cronin, who was attempting to depict the experience of Maroons or of enslaved people in the Great Dismal Swamp, the generation prior to his sitting down and painting this image. What you'll notice are several key things. You'll notice uh, in the foreground toward the bottom center of this image, uh, a group of enslaved people who seem to be very much closely related, uh, engaged in conversation and quite vigilant about their uh, surroundings. You'll see also that they have uh, knapsacks and other sorts of small, baskets uh, which they can use to, or which they did use, I should say, to carry around provisions as they moved about the swamp. You'll see the woman toward the lower left is also carrying a young child. And you'll see toward the center of the image, three others who are quite vigilant, two uh, closer to our three in the center of the image, one a bit further in the distance waving as over his shoulders He's calling attention to this group in hiding uh, who are seemingly uh, hiding from the line of soldiers marching through the swamp. Again, David Cronin was depicting a Civil War era uh, image in this story, uh, which as you'll note in the subtitle of my book is a bit outside of the context that I chose to write about. But uh, I highlight this in part because it's important for us to know that this story did extend well into the Civil War era. I'll engage our conversation today, or at least this portion of our conversation, the lecture, uh, in these key ways. First, I'll begin by talking about the core questions which will drive uh, today, today's lecture. I'll then turn to to a brief discussion of the historical and scholarly context in which uh, I engage in City of Refuge with an effort uh, to center our discussion today on the project of writing about change over time, the project of history, particularly as the project of writing about change over time. I'll turn then to a general outline of City of Refuge. I'll talk a bit about thereafter uh, current projects I'm engaging, and then I hope to turn to questions and discussion. The Great Dismal Swamp, as many of you likely know, uh, straddles the border of Virginia and North Carolina. Uh, at the time of its place at the center of marinage and uh, enslaved labor, it was located about 10 miles to the south of Norfolk and about 10 or so miles to the northwest of Elizabeth City, as you can see here on this particular map. The rust color 
is essentially the approximate historic extent of the swamp itself, the clear, uh, the clearly demarked zone in the center of the swamp uh, includes what is today the Great Dismal Swamp National Wildlife Refuge uh, maintained by the United States Park Service uh, or Forest Service, excuse me. And then the lines within that clear zone are the drainage ditches, which uh, date to uh, the earliest in the 1760s, but more importantly, and perhaps uh, more accurately, uh, the main ditches, which came into use in the 19th and 20th centuries. Washington Ditch, as you'll see in the center of this map, is perhaps the oldest of the ditches. Uh, and then you'll see also at the center of the map, Lake Drummond, uh, which was very much the center of the Great Dismal Swamp uh, throughout its uh, history as a zone of slavery and slave resistance. You'll see on the eastern edge of the Great Dismal Swamp here, the Dismal Swamp Canal, which uh, was constructed in several uh, stages, three to be exact, from the late 18th into the uh, early 19th century, into the 1820s, and then also extended and broadened uh, later in the post-Civil War era to be now today the uh, Dismal Swamp Canal that can be visited uh, uh, by accessing the entry points on the eastern edge of the swamp. So our core question today, how, do we, how might we contextualize the main story uh, presented in City of Refuge? And how what might we particularly do that in a way that helps us to uh, gain lessons useful in our present? My core contribution, I believe, is a grassroots complex history of slavery, of labor, and of race in early Republican Virginia. And particularly if we're thinking about the key actors involved in constructing the swamp's early uh, internal improvements as they came to be known in the 19th century, we're also looking at a story that is in some ways Atlantic in scope, or at least driven by changes with the rise of the early American Republic. I'll get into those details a bit more as we go forward, but first I want to talk briefly about the challenge of writing such a particular story. That challenge in no uncertain terms is the challenge of negotiating a disparately dispersed and limited primary source base and so in order to engage that particular challenge, I had to undertake a source uh, search. First of all, I had to develop a list of primary sources that uh, might be of use uh, in understanding better the story of the Great Dismal Swamp as it relates to slavery and slave resistance. Uh, and that effort to compile that list took me to a number of archives in Virginia and North Carolina and eventually beyond. Those archives do include uh, collections held in the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, but also in the Library of Virginia, in the Spem Library uh, at William and Mary, uh, in the Library of Congress in Washington, DC, uh, at the Smith National Library in Mount Vernon, uh, in smaller library holdings in the region closest to the swamp, the Suffolk County Historical Society, uh, as Sue Woodward once called it for me, uh, the Chesapeake Library, uh, Chesapeake Nanseman Library, I should say, 
uh, and then several uh, holdings in North Carolina uh, to include uh, the special collections at the Rubenstein Library at Duke University uh, and the collections held in the North Carolina Division of Archives and History in Raleigh, among others. Compiling this source base then, I turned to the ways in which other scholars, historians, uh, archeologists, uh, folklorists had written about uh, the Dismal Swamp and its human history of slavery uh, and slave resistance. And in attempting to find an angle that potentially contributed something new to the extant conversation, I was challenged to engage recent historical methods uh, often articulated by Marisa Fuentes, Ann Stoller, and Sadia Hartman, uh, which center on ways that one can read in traditional primary sources, the silences, uh, ways that one can read against the grain of traditional uh, uh, historical sources, and ways that one might read with the grain of those sources as well. To read the silences is an attempt to engage what may be absent in the sources and to use other extant sources, primary and secondary, uh, to support uh, your perspective on reading historical sources that uh, don't necessarily directly record what's of most interest to you. And I highlight reading silences in particular because City of Refuge is very much at its core an effort to engage the silences in the records of the swamp, which I'll talk about in a bit more detail coming forward. Before we talk about those sources, I'd like to set a bit of historical context for us. The context that is perhaps most important to understanding City of Refuge and the beginning of this human history of slavery and slave resistance in the Great Dismal Swamp is to think about the revolutionary era in the state of Virginia and in the former British colonies more broadly. The important watershed begins in the year 1763 and extends through the year 1764. It's in these two years that the Dismal Swamp Company and then future, uh, uh, eventually called the Dismal Swamp Land Company is established in 1763. And then Dismal Plantation, its first effort at creating a slave labor enterprise is established in the following year, 1764. It's operational in fits and starts for roughly a decade, uh, roughly a decade, I say, until about 1774, until the independence movement in the colonies begins to draw away the attentions of company members and to some degree company agents too, whose charge it was particularly, that is to say company agents, uh, to oversee enslaved people uh, in the Dismal Swamp at various sites. Key watersheds here include June 1776 when Virginia's Declaration of Rights is read aloud and agreed and the formal vote for independence in Virginia soon follows. And then July 1776, uh, when the United States Declaration of Independence from Great Britain is agreed and circulated about the colonies. The war, of course, happens uh, and is engaged in a series of stages and battles and skirmish points well into the early 1780s 
when active combat in North America ended at Yorktown in late 1781. The war itself for the new, uh, newly declared nation led to, in the 1780s, a period of severe economic depression and uncertainty for many of the new states uh, and many folks engaged in the project of building the new nation. That context is incredibly important for us as we uh, consider the project of establishing a presence based upon slave labor in the Great Dismal Swamp. And I engage that too in City of Refuge. There's also a separate but connected context, which is vitally important to engage as well in order to understand uh, the broader context which helps to inform slave resistance in the region. Beginning in earnest in the 1760s, the first wave of freedom petitions from individual black people and black communities begins to sweep the new nation, uh, particularly in New England, particularly in Massachusetts, where seven major petitions, no fewer than seven, are circulated before uh, the war begins. That generation from the 1760s uh, to the 1780s also witnesses in Virginia a significant uptick in enslaved Virginians' efforts to flee to freedom or efforts to resist slavery uh, where they remained on various plantations and at various sites, including in the Great Dismal Swamp. The first wave of gradual emancipation laws sweeps the early United States from as early as 1777 through about 1804. Uh, 1777, the first limited measure passes in Vermont. In 1804, the last limited measure passes in New Jersey. Uh, in Maryland and Virginia, there is great discussion uh, privately and publicly, uh, which yields limited manumission measures which are ultimately foreclosed, particularly in Virginia after 1806. Further to the South in the Carolinas and Georgia, uh, gradual emancipation or limited manumission measures are defeated roundly uh, with little debate. And in the same context, free black communities form throughout the new nation, uh, the most famous of which perhaps uh, take shape in Northern cities such as Philadelphia, New York, in Boston, but we should also include in this conversation and particularly for our purposes, Norfolk as well. The early Republic uh, creates a context or uh, uh, puts forth into the world a context of democratic republicanism, which is at its core flawed. The earliest United States charters uh, the Articles of Confederation enforced for about a decade after 1777, and the United States Constitution uh, before the 13th Amendment in force uh, from 1787, uh, or roughly 1789 when it's ratified, uh, through the early 1860s. The Articles of Confederation enacted a weak federal union which empowered greatly individual new states, the United States Constitution, a response, an effort uh, initially uh, intended to amend the Articles of Feder uh, Confederation to strengthen uh, the new federal charter and eventually scrapped for the United States Constitution. 
key problems in that United States Constitution include uh, uh, rather widely known issues now. Uh, the Three-Fifths Compromise, for example, which counted 60% of slave populations for the purpose of apportioning representation in the United States House. Uh, centrally important to understand in order for us to more broadly engage the outmoded uh, uh, political power that Southern states particularly wielded in the new federal government. Uh, and also the 20-year moratorium on the debate uh, or a decision regarding closing for good the transatlantic slave trade, which ultimately in the first decade of the 19th century does come to pass, but not without significant efforts by merchants, particularly in Charleston, to reopen that port to transatlantic slave trading. The shift too, beginning in the 1790s and Ernst, uh, to the growth and robust expansion of what became known as the internal or domestic slave trade, which ultimately by uh, the Civil War led to approximately 1 million enslaved people displaced internally, mainly from the Chesapeake, Virginia, and Maryland, but also from North Carolina and other zones in the Upper South. I summarize that context in part because City of Refuge uh, is presented as somewhat of a local history, but it's not a local history that happens in a vacuum. And it's vitally important to consider uh, the broader context of revolutionary change, or like thereof, some might argue, in order to situate what's happening in the Great Dismal Swamp and particularly in order to understand why others from beyond the South Side Virginia take notice of the Great Dismal Swamp, particularly in the 19th century. The key ways that I frame the story that I tell center mainly on the growth and expansion of the Dismal Swamp Company via its many records uh, where I mentioned disparately uh, dis uh, uh, held in various archives. Two key contexts of the Dismal Swamp Company, its establishment in 1763 into the 1810s, uh, about the year 1814 or so, it's reconstituted uh, and becomes known as the Dismal Swamp Land Company to, in some ways, distinguish it from the, establish the establishment and growth of the Dismal Swamp Canal Company. The Dismal Swamp Land Company uh, operates until 1871, several years after the end of the Civil War, uh, in a post-war era of no longer being able to rely on slave labor. Among the Dismal Swamp Company's leading members was uh, George Washington himself uh, and a cast of leading Virginians. Uh, I mentioned George Washington here because my latest work uh, is centering in the records of the Washington family, tracing he, uh, John Augustine Washington and Bushrod Washington among others in an attempt to better understand the grass at the grassroots level, uh, the operation of Dismal Plantation, which I mentioned here as well, an operation from about 1763 into the 1790s, as far as I can tell. And then John Augustine Washington, who managed Dismal Plantation from 1763-4 to about 1774. 
I also traced the records of other um, important investors in both the Dismal Swamp Land Company and other outfits which engage in the swamp, including the Dismal Swamp Canal Company. Among these men are Richard Blow, uh, who's an independent com uh, commission merchant uh, in Norfolk and is directly involved in the Dismal Swamp Company, at least until about 1815. Uh, an agent, Samuel Proctor, who labored for Blow and then who became a Dismal Swamp Land Company agent at Suffolk, his, his story is particularly revealing for the way in which we might be able to tell more about the experience of slavery in the Dismal. Uh, James Holliday, a later swamp agent for the Dismal Swamp Land Company in the 1830s. Edmund Booth, an enslaved free and then enslaved again laborer uh, for the Oropeak Canal Company uh, between 1847 and the mid 1850s. And Usman the Maroon, who was sketched by an artist uh, in an image which appears in Harper's New Monthly in 1856. Uh, I'll talk a bit more about Usman the Maroon, particularly a little bit down the line. Uh, but I also would like to point to the way in which abolitionist writers begin to propagate the swamp in the 1820s uh, and pamphlets that begin to appear in places such as Boston uh, and then more rapidly, perhaps in more volume in the 40s, 1840s and 50s. You may have a question at this point. What is marinage? What is petite marinage? And how does it function as a story narrative arc in City of Refuge? To answer that question, uh, I see marinage as perhaps the most pervasive form of fugitive slave and community formation, resistance, negotiation, and enslaver accommodation, not only in this, the context of the Great Dismal Swamp, but more broadly in the context of the Atlantic world as well. Part of my effort to tell the story of the enslaved people in the Great Dismal Swamp then was an effort to understand marinage more broadly. I hew very tightly to the story of the enslaved people in the Great Dismal Swamp and City of Refuge, and I use an understanding of marinage to sort of sort out, explain, or otherwise question and interrogate the swamp's history of slave resistance. And in case you're interested more broadly in the history of Marinage, I've also surveyed uh, the most recent scholarship in that history, which you see cited here, uh, which appeared just last month in History Compass. But beyond that, why might I make the case that this project matters? And why particularly does this project matter uh, as an effort to bring attention, scholarly attention and otherwise, to the voluminous records of these companies that engaged in slave labor? My immediate answer as I present in City of Refuge is that there are ways to know more about the experiences of slavery in the Great Dismal Swamp, and particularly about the people there enslaved for scholarly audiences and beyond. 
But that turns us to a second question, and this is a question I hope that we'll ponder at length and perhaps discuss uh, in the period after this talk. What are the implications of knowing for our uh, knowing this history for our responsibilities as citizens in the present day? And this question is particularly poignant as we consider our nation's current unrest. Let's talk a bit about the key sources which inform City of Refuge. During my time uh, as a Mellon Fellow at what was then the Virginia Historical Society, I read very closely and attempted to uh, contextualize the letter books of Richard Blow, the previously mentioned commission merchant. This was time spent reading and snapping digital images of sources that read and look, frankly, as these examples you see here. To the left is a rather long letter penned by George Blow, Richard's son, discussing the decision to hire Samuel Proctor to manage hired enslaved people, which the Blows were in turn dispatching into the Great Dismal Swamp. They were doing so to have a crew of enslaved people who might be compelled to labor at the project of digging and lengthening the Great uh, Dismal Swamp Canal, or what was then known as the Great Canal, uh, and some of its tributary irrigation ditches. The second image you see here on the right is an image of Richard Blow writing to uh, Samuel Proctor discussing enslaved laborers who cut timber for the Norfolk Naval Yard uh, in a camp on the North Carolina side of the swamp. They were doing so in the following year, in the summer of July, 1808. I pondered these sources at great length, attempting to engage the silences. These are letters to be sure that are more or less discussions of the business of the swamp, more or less discussions of the prospects of slave labor in the swamp and dealing very little, if they did at all, with descriptions of the individual laborers dispatched to a timber camp on the North Carolina side of the line to fetch labor, uh, timber, excuse me, for the Norfolk Naval Yard. Part of perhaps a troubling legacy of slave labor in the Great Dismal Swamp is that the managers of these companies, at least before the 1830s and 40s, were not all that interested in describing the enslaved people dispatched into the swamp. And when they referenced slave resistance, it was less about the individual actions and the agency that those actions reflected and more about the inconveniences to the company. Read with the grain then, this was on its face, an excellent history of company operations and slave labor in the swamp. That's one thread, of course, of the story. Read against the grain, however, and read while pondering the silences. There was indeed a way to at least lift some of the stories of the enslaved people in the swamp. 
Perhaps the most famous of these enslaved people, many of you may know, was Moses Grandy. And I deal with his story too. But I also deal with the stories of more or less known uh, enslaved people who labored in the swamp, including Edmund Booth, as I mentioned before. Now, another reason to ponder why this story was important for the actors who engaged it uh, in various points in this history came to me as I was trying to understand the way in which abolitionists were using, politicizing the reality of slave labor in the Great Dismal Swamp. They were writing in a context in which uh, great slaveholders of Virginia and other places, particularly in the Upper South, were beginning to uh, postulate a new narrative for slavery in the region, uh, a new benevolent narrative for slavery in the, in, in the region. And also, while they were trying to explain away uh, continued use of slave labor, even as the circumstances for slavery changed in Virginia. A compelling essay in this particular vein was penned by Edmund Jackson in 1852. It appeared in a pamphlet called The Liberty Bell, which circulated about Boston and its immediate region. Edmund Jackson, for what it's worth, was the younger brother of a much more uh, famous uh, abolitionist by the name of Francis Jackson. Uh, and Edmund Jackson himself had penned three previous essays, uh, which appeared in The Liberty Bell, and which treated in more traditional ways the problems of the era discrimination against African-Americans, for example, in Boston's public school system uh, was the subject of one essay in the preceding decade. But in writing this particular essay, which appeared in 1852, and titling it The Virginia Maroons, Edmund Jackson was shifting tactics and attempting to privilege, to highlight, to play up the question of marinage as slave resistance and its particular application to the slave labor camps in the Great Dismal Swamp. As you may be able to read in the image to the right, Edmund Jackson opens by saying in the West India Islands, but more especially in Jamaica, Cuba, and Santo Domingo, during the reign of slavery, it was common for fugitive slaves to seek shelter and security in the mountainous and secluded portions of those islands where they congregated in small communities. He goes on to write about the ways in which uh, the camps of slave laborers in the Great Dismal Swamp and the reported camps of fugitive slaves in the Dismal Swamp constituted two ends of a distinct network that was well known locally and comprising swamp merchants who ensured that even the fugitive camps received the provisions they needed to survive. In search of some of these camps, David Hunter Strother entered the swamp and encountered during his visit, guided by uh, two canal workers, a man they called Usman. David Hunter Strother describes him as a maroon in the swamp and sketches this image, which appears in September 1856 
and Harper's New Monthly magazine. You'll note an image in which Usman is clothed similarly to the enslaved people who appeared much later in David Cronin's oil painting, which appeared in 1888. But you'll notice here too that Usman is armed that Usman's limbs particularly are strong, his hands seemingly gnarled by the labors of working in the swamp. His hair closely uh, shaped around his head and graying, which seems to reflect an image of an older person who may very well have lived for several years in the swamp. David Hunter Strother doesn't give us much more, did not give his uh, readers, I should say, much more to go on than what we see in this particular image. And to be sure, this image served the purpose of propagating an idea of marinage in the Great Dismal Swamp in the 1850s context of unrest, particularly after the Compromise of 1850, strengthened the federal fugitive slave law. This image, I should also note, appears mere months before the momentous decision in the Dred Scott case of 1857, uh, a decision which the uh, Chief Justice, Roger B. Taney, uh, speaking for the majority of the court, essentially rendered free black people and enslaved people no longer as humans with rights that white men or women were bound to respect. Those source examples, those contextual keys informed my efforts to uh, complete the manuscript of City of Refuge to have it go undergo a significant scholarly review uh, and then to have it appear as the book that I'm talking about today. But I was left also with questions that I seek to pursue and that I hope, frankly, uh, others may be interested in pursuing as well. I'll talk briefly now about some of those uh, research directions as I believe my time is running a bit short. I'm currently drafting an essay which explores the place of traditional archives in the context of emergent digital histories. I'm doing so as a part of a workshop convened by my good friends uh, in the Thomas Paine uh, Institute at Iona College. I'm thinking about City of Refuge in this context in part because there are key questions that City of Refuge raises and attempts uh, to engage. One such set of questions centers on Tom, who is a runaway, who appears in several uh, records, uh, first about 1767 uh, and then last about 1783. Three separate runaway advertisements appear in the Virginia Gazette, as you see here, June 23rd and October 6th, 1768, and April 13, 1769, which describe Tom quite similarly and which frankly give me enough confidence to believe that the Tom in each of these three runaway ads is the same person. 
There was also the Dismal Swamp Company letter uh, penned by company member David Jameson to company agent John Driver in December 1783, which describes Tom's eventual capture, or at least describes the prospect of his capture. The problem here is that other records confirm at least three persons, enslaved people, named Tom, who were dispatched into the swamp uh, in the original group of enslaved people sent to Dismal Plantation in July 1764. That record is available by way of the University of Virginia Press Rotunda Digital Collection, which I accessed uh, just earlier this month, in order to share with us today the appraisement of Dismal Swamp slaves uh, penned in George Washington's hand, it's a copy of the original document, on July 4, 1764. We see that the Mr. Bacon, this is Anthony Bacon, uh, who owned a merchant company in the region, and Felding Lewis were responsible for contributing to enslaved men named Tom. We see here uh, with a number beside the name uh, which reflects the value assigned to each person. One Tom uh, who was valued at 60 pounds British currency, another valued at 75 pounds British currency, and Mr. Samuel Gist, responsible for the third Tom, valued at 52 pounds and 10 uh, shillings, I believe. The problem with this document is much the same as the problem of other documents. Where the runaway advertisements offer decent descriptions that offer a consistent picture of a town that I trace in one of the chapters of City of Refuge. This document offers no description of physical features, but offers instead value which according to the scholarship of slave valuations, leads us to believe that these two times in the 1760s were quite valuable to the company. And you can see that as well in relation to the values of the other uh, enslaved people originally uh, dispatched to the swamp. It's worthy of note too, that in 1764, two dismal plantation company members dispatched a number of enslaved women as well and perhaps two minor children. Uh, the women, Bella, Rachel, Minnie, perhaps Bab, Penny, Molly. The children, Hannah, a girl, Tony, a boy. We see here too, toward the bottom of this document, uh, a footnote appended to uh, the document in the digital collection by the scholars who worked to compile these records. It notes that George Washington's account with the company shows that his total of 365 pounds was more than 52 pounds above the average price or appraised value of the contributions of enslaved people by members of the company. George Washington himself records having received November 16, 1764, that amount in payment from John Robinson, whose value of the contribution of enslaved people was below the average. We see here company members seeking to square with one another 
the value of enslaved people they dispatched into the swamp for the purchase of establishing a plantation. I seem short on time, so I'll skip the brief passage reading and I'll turn our attention again to our key questions for discussion. So how do we contextualize this story of slavery, of freedom, of unfreedom in City of Refuge, an 18th and 19th century story for people in the present who are interested in these histories of slavery, of freedom, of unfreedom, for reasons that help to inform lessons we need in the present? Why does it matter to do so? Perhaps to delve even more deeply. And what are the implications of knowing for us in the present day? Thank you for your attention. I look forward to our conversations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus. Uh, obviously a great deal of research uh, has gone into, into the book. Um, and uh, you can order copies of Marcus's book through uh, the VMHC's website. And, but now we would like to open it up to, to questions and uh, have a conversation. So if you're logged into Facebook or YouTube, uh, you should be able to uh, ask a question, uh, which will come to me, and then uh, I will relay it to Dr. Nevius. You mentioned that you were working on uh, a future project. Uh, would you care to add more to what you're planning for the future? Sure. Um, it occurred to me um, as I was preparing the manuscript for uh, review and frankly for publication, the manuscript of City of Refuge that is, that I hadn't perhaps articulated in greater detail uh, the methods that I used to uh, read the sources uh, which I bring to bear uh, in City of Refuge. Part of the uh, answer for that is that I was looking to narrate a story. I see myself first and foremost as a narrative historian. I'm driven by the project of talking about change over time and using or highlighting examples uh, to that effect. But then my good friends mentioned that they were interested in thinking more about source methodologies. And so that project is currently ongoing. Where I'm taking a look at what we can find, for example, in the Rotunda project or uh, what we might be able to find in other digitized repositories and comparing that to the experience of actually having to visit a library such as the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and sit with sources, including Richard Blow's letter book in order to ponder it, uh, to touch it, to feel it, to dive into the milieu of managers essentially of the Dismal Swamp Canal Company in that case, uh, and to do so with the blind spots that that produces without being able to engage in other uh, forms of research uh, at one's fingertips. I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm, I'm curious as I work that out, it's in a very 
uh, early stage of conception. One viewer asked, what, what kind of communication did the Maranoj community in the Great Dismal Swamp have with other similar communities in the South or vice versa? That's an excellent question. And <laughs> the short answer is that I don't really have a good answer for that. Um, uh, I should probably have foregrounded the fact that uh, much of the Maranoj in the Great Dismal Swamp particularly uh, took shape under the radar of what was recorded. Um, there have been a number of ways to sort of approach this history. I have some friends uh, who are working out of California seeking to interview um, descendant families in that Virginia Southside region. And what we've learned particularly is that um, the Dismal Swamp for as large a land space as it was, was a very tightly uh, connected community of people who essentially communicated by way of runners who went back and forth between different sites uh, within the swamp itself. In certain instances, uh, we have evidence of communication beyond the swamp. Uh, in one particular instance, we can consider uh, the unrest in 1800 around Prosser's conspiracy or Gabriel's conspiracy as we know it today. Uh, and then two years later around the Easter conspiracy where we know from the actual uh, trial court records that enslaved watermen carried along the waterways of the region information about the rebellion uh, to disparate groups in Northeastern North Carolina who were not directly connected to uh, the swamp or uh, the source actually of Gabriel's conspiracy in Richmond uh, in 1800. Uh, that said, stretching far beyond the region is quite difficult a project to undertake and it's one, frankly, that I did not undertake in City of Refuge. Uh, to some degree, we can speculate that perhaps enslaved people who are sold south may have carried information with them, uh, but we just don't have the research behind that for me to speak with any more confidence than speculation at this point. Uh, a Facebook viewer asked whether you had come across uh, Moses Grandy in any of your research. I certainly did. I used uh, Moses Grandy's narrative uh, in chapter four, I believe. I, I use it to foreground. Um, I'm actually pulling open the book here too. To foreground managing the business of the swamp on the one hand, and on the other hand, to foreground the experience of essentially living in the swamp as someone who was an enslaved laborer at uh, various sites. Uh, the viewer may know, uh, I assume would know, that Moses Grandy was perhaps famous for having spent a significant amount of time along the shore of Lake Drummond in recovery and in hiding uh, as he struggled with rheumatism. Uh, I highlight that particular story and I use that uh, to sort of speak more broadly to that experience. There's also in Moses Grandy's narrative, the descriptions of, of actually living on a nightly basis in the swamp on a bed of sawdust uh, underneath shelter constructed with the timber and other branches and such that one might be able to source right there at a particular timber camp. Uh, so I did find Moses Grandy's narrative to be quite useful. And I also tried to trace uh, his experience to Providence, Rhode Island. He makes a brief mention that uh, 
he spent a little time in Providence before returning to North Carolina, before ultimately returning uh, to Massachusetts thereafter. Uh, so I hope that answers uh, that viewer's question particularly, but Moses Grandi is in some ways very central to the story of the Great Dismal Swamp. Well, they're two separate questions, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll put these together. Um, uh, the, the talk uh, mentioned a lot about men in the community. Uh, what about women's roles? And perhaps uh, if you know anything about uh, Quaker activity in relationship to the swamp, particularly in the enslaved communities in uh, North Carolina. Excellent questions, both. Uh, I'll take the second question first. Uh, I framed this book using primarily the land company records and canal company records, and then uh, to some degree, the records of smaller outfits in the region uh, and court case trial records uh, when talking about moments of insurrection or conspiracy. That's a long-winded way of saying um, I did not consider any of the records of the local Quaker churches, although I did engage with some of the secondary scholarship of, of that, particularly in the 18th century. It's an either even long, more long-winded way of saying, uh, I didn't find any evidence of coordinated action uh, beyond the mention uh, in Hugo Leeming's posthumously published dissertation, Hidden Americans. I believe there's some uh, reference to that question in Leeming's work. And I pretty much left that to be, to, to stand as Hugo Leeming presented it uh, 25 or so years ago now, uh, or as it was uh, posthumously presented in his wake. To the first question, um, the roles of women or the presence of women was even more vexing, uh, a question to try to answer in this particular book. And I must say, I didn't do a great job of it, in part because women beyond the appraisement document that I, I referenced don't show up in the land company or canal company records. Uh, they don't show up in even the minor company records uh, with any, what's, what's the way to put it? There's no way to qualify it. They're not really there. And that's not to say that they're not in the swamp. It is to say that as an historian, uh, and that's the scholarly perspective with which I tried to uh, present this story, it's incredibly difficult to even make a mention when I don't even have uh, evidence beyond the appraisement uh, document. Now that said, I know that there's been some work uh, among other scholars who have attempted to investigate more deeply that story uh, I don't know the extent to which they have been able to contribute every, anything that directly references the Great Dismal Swamp, but I am aware that there's new work that's beginning to engage uh, the communities around the swamp in an effort to sort of tell the story from that angle to uh, contribute to readings of the silences, if you will, in order for us to better understand the way in which uh, the story of women in the Great Dismal Swamp might better be presented than even I've been able to accomplish here. I can say too that the oil painting, the David Cronin oil painting does depict uh, at least one woman. And in his retrospective in 1888, I would assume that he was making a particular effort to depict community, which would include women, 
which did include children. Uh, but that community, if you're looking strictly or closely at the records, is it, it really escapes description. When you're talking, you mentioned uh, the the maroons. Uh, any any quantitative uh, data on how many and how the numbers might have changed over time? Good question as well. Uh, the quantitative data was equally as difficult to uh, track. Uh, it really required piecing together uh, sometimes disparate, sometimes uh, consecutive mention of numbers of enslaved people hired by the company or otherwise dispatched by these companies into particular sections of the swamp. Uh, I am aware that some scholars have uh, mentioned as many as 2,000 enslaved people in the swamp over the course of its uh, 150 a year or so uh, existence. And they trace that a bit beyond uh, the 1760s, which I use as a watershed moment. Uh, in my particular efforts, I would say closer to several hundred uh, appear in the records that I've been able to engage, and they appear most readily in smaller groups, uh, that number less than 20 uh, at a time, uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, there are ledgers of enslaved people who were dispatched into the swamp. Uh, counties, particularly on the North Carolina side of the swamp, in the wake of Nat Turner's rebellion, began to require county ledgers. Uh, and of the extant county ledgers, the most famous uh, is the Gates County Register. The Gates County Register does record uh, the number of enslaved people who went to the Oropeak Canal site on the southern end of the swamp. And on any given year, uh, they were dispatching as many as uh, 50 or so enslaved people to that particular site. There's other evidence too uh, for other companies that engaged in milling, sawmill camps, for example. Uh, the aggregate numbers, I uh, would say number in the mid hundreds, uh, five to 600 or so over the course of that same time, not as much as 2000. Uh, but I can also say that I was more interested in this book in the narrative arc of the story of slavery and slave resistance. Um, and so to the extent that I engage in the quantitative study, it, it really focuses on the moments that appear in this book in the particular groups at the particular sites that I'm looking at. Well, I think our last question for today that um, came from a, a viewer in Facebook that is really apropos considering um, what we do in the museum profession um, is trying to draw connections between material culture and the story. Uh, so one viewer asked, uh, what if any role have you seen for archaeology in helping to tell this story? Funny story. <laughs> I um, actually developed a good working relationship with the primary historical archaeologist who uh, led field schools into the swamp between 2009 and 2013, uh, Dan Sayers out of American University. And I was uh, fortunate enough to join his last field school in 2013. Uh, and so to that end, I was actually privy to really an intensive uh, month-long study of the swamp's material culture on site. We actually uh, stayed in a house 
in Isle of Wight, I believe, somewhere in Isle of Wight County, uh, and drove down to a site toward the southern end of the swamp uh, where we made entry from the North Carolina side on a daily basis uh, from late May to early June. Um, that experience uh, taught me a lot about the lithic material culture of the swamp, particularly for the earlier period, uh, which Dan and other uh, archeologists interpret as a story of change over time from Native American artifacts, which were drawn into the swamp by Native American people who carried them into the swamp, uh, but then reworked by enslaved people and Maroons who found them in the topsoil of the swamp and uh, uh, essentially reworked them to their own purposes. Hammerstones, for example, cut to uh, sharpen points uh, that could be used to uh, perhaps fillet uh, an animal or something found in the swamp. Other elements of material culture include uh, evidence of posting ground structures on particular swamp sites that were away from, distributed away from uh, the actual slave labor camps. Uh, and much of that I summarize in the early pages of City of Refuge, but I leave the details to the scholars who are much more versed in understanding and talking about and articulating uh, material culture. There are also some good references to that point by Dan himself and by uh, some of the scholars who worked with him, Becca Prosciutto, uh, uh, among others who come to mind uh, as well. So that those uh, sources I do cite in my literary uh, uh, summary in City of Refuge. And I invite you to look to them for more, <laughs> for more uh, cogent articulation of the material culture. Thank you again, Marcus, for a fascinating program. I hope that uh, everyone will avail themselves to the opportunity to, to read the book uh, and to to join in the journey as we learn more about this very fascinating subject. Um, uh, please uh, keep a watch on our website uh, for future programs uh, in the lecture series over the summer. Uh, and I hope that uh, everyone stays well and be safe. Thank you again for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you.